Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. How's it going, everyone? Welcome into another edition of the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand, and as always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Happy belated birthday, Tina. Thank you, Joe. And Rich Lenkov of Bryce Downey and Lenkov. Rich, uh, would you rather be a Blackhawks fan or a Habs fan right now? I don't think you can mention that on the air. So given your new role, but uh, I'm going to say it's tough to be a, a Habs fan right now. Oh, oh, for the season. And I think uh, if they lose one more game, they'll have the worst start ever for a final a Stanley Cup finalist team. So kind of rough. Well, see, that's why I bring it up, because it's not the worst thing in the world for the Blackhawks, right? right. There are other teams that are successful that are struggling. Anyway, let's get to our first topic. The jury selection for the Ahmaud Arbery murder, a black man that was shot and killed while out jogging in Georgia, begins on Monday. And experts are saying that this case may expose Georgia's history on race. We have joined with us Professor Ronald Carlson, the chair of law emeritus at the University of Georgia Law uh, School of Law. And he's also been a a part of the department since 1984, also has written many books on evidence, trial practice, and criminal procedure. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet. Great to be with you folks. Thank you, Professor. As Joe mentioned, we're a couple days into jury selection in this very uh, widely covered story. Of course, when it happened in February of 2020, it got nationwide attention in the wake of the George Floyd murder and some other similar incidents. So as the team picks jurors, what are the challenges to find 12 people who have not yet made up their mind on the guilt or innocence of these three defendants? Well, you're right on the mark. There are some very difficult challenges here because so many of the people come into the case with pre-knowledge about it. That makes it very, very difficult. And the jury questioning has been very, very careful so far to the frustration of the judge who have said, hey, we've got to move this along a little faster. Now, one of the reasons the jurors have so much knowledge is because that video which went viral, was seen by virtually all of the jurors, and it uh, assisted them, if you will, in preforming opinions about this case. Here are some remarks from some of the jury members. One said, this was a hate crime. Another juror said, Travis McMichael shot a man who had done nothing wrong, and this progressive prospective juror said, I would call that murder. Uh, Another juror said uh, he believed the defendant should be convicted on all counts. Now, uh, some evidence of what I'm talking about here, they call 20 people at a time up up into the courtroom for uh, what they call here jury voir dire. During the voir dire, the first panel of 20, the judge asked, as you begin this, do you have a negative feeling about the McMichaels? 12 of the 20 raised their hand. Hmm. So you can see a lot of pre-knowledge by the jurors, and uh, that, that makes the jury selecting very, very challenging. One prospective juror said, hey, uh, if somebody is flying a Confederate flag, I know he's a racist. And that's uh, got some high relevance to this case because of a photograph that the prosecutors are Uh, trying to get offered into evidence. The photograph, that's of Travis McMichael's truck with a license plate with a Confederate battle flag on it. Professor, um, the defendants are likely to invoke Georgia's citizens' arrest law. There's been a lot of airplay on this point as well. This is a pre-Civil War law that was repealed in May as a result of this very case. You have uh, been reported as having said that this is a unique circumstance. Can you please explain? Well, it's rare that fully two laws that have been enacted in recent days, uh, so to speak, uh, emanate from a case which is now coming up on trial. First of all, Georgia never had a hate crime law 
That has now been enacted. And uh, that was a result of this uh, Arbery case. The second was the repeal of the citizen's arrest law. One of the points the uh, defense lawyers will uh, employ here, as you well know, is that uh, they have the right to use the law as it existed at the time of the episode. So that repeal will not cut back the defense's ability to use the old citizen's arrest law in operation at the time that Mr. Arbery was killed. That says that if you have a felony committed in your presence, or if you have a felony committed within your immediate knowledge, you're entitled to bring down the person and detain him uh, who committed the felony. They say that's what they were doing. They were chasing Mr. Arbery because they had probable cause to believe that he had committed a burglary, and they were in hot pursuit. Well, so you mentioned the video. Let's get back to that, because it's a very significant part of the uh, piece of evidence, obviously, because what it shows, yeah, it really depicts uh, much of the crime, which is unusual, the alleged crime, which is unusual. How important do you think this video will be? Um, and is it really, uh, you know, obviously we don't see what happens before and after, and that goes into what the defendants are alleging. But talk to us about the significance of, of this video. Oh, that's an excellent question. And you're right on the mark. This video is the centerpiece of this case. Few pieces of evidence have had this kind of prominence in a criminal case. I can think of only two others that are as impactful as this one. The Rodney King beating and the George Floyd with the knee on the neck. And this Arbery video is right up there in that galaxy of demonstrative evidence as the most important ones in the history of American law. The judge said, and I quote, the video provides the jury with a direct account of the moments leading up to Mr. Arbery's death. Now this case languished for two months after uh, Arbery was killed, and it was only after the video came out that the, the case broke open. Within two days, murder charges were filed. So, Professor, as we discussed earlier in our last question, is until June of this year, Georgia was one of four states without the hate crime law. And one of the defendants, Travis McMichael, allegedly yelled a racial slur at Arbery as he laid on the ground dying. McMichael also allegedly texted racial messages to friends and had a Confederate flag license plate. Is it possible for the trial judge to be able to keep racial issues out of this case, given these circumstances? Well, there'll be some racial content uh, in the voir dire questions, but you're quite correct. Once the case starts, the judge will work hard to keep racial animus at a minimum. Uh, and uh, this judge has been quite effective in enforcing various evidentiary rules so far. So I believe he'll be successful on that. I don't think that uh, the racial aspect of it will emotionalize the case once it gets started. Now, um, the judge has made a couple of important pretrial rulings. One is uh, Mr. Arbery's past record of criminality excluded from the evidence. Uh, the other one is his mental health history also excluded from the evidence by the trial judge. You might ask, how are they going to use, the defense going to use that mental health history? Well, they say it imparted a certain impulsiveness to Mr. Arbery so that when he met McMichael around the front of that pickup truck, that's why he grabbed a shotgun uh, under threat from an, a man armed with a 12-gauge. Last question, Professor. Um, you know, there will be, obviously, through the course of this trial, lots of media attention on it. There will be protesters outside the courtroom every single day. In the wake of the protests we saw following the George Floyd killing and various other similar instances over the last couple of years, how much do you think a jury will be impacted by knowing that their decision on this case might, frankly, spark a riot, might spark protests? Um, how much impact do you think that has on when they're in that room deciding the guilt or innocence of these three individuals? Well, that's always a concern in these sort of cases. And that's why the lawyers will work very hard during the voir dire to get people who might be 
somewhat immune to that kind of concern, as you know, and, and you're correctly uh, assessing. Uh, fear of an outcome has no place in a jury's deliberations. So they will try to get jurors who uh, will be not particularly influenced by that possibility. That's a difficult commodity, however, because these people are in that community. They don't want the community disrupted by protests. Again, that's Professor Ronald Carlson, Chair of Law Emeritus at the University of Georgia School of Law. Professor, thanks so much for the insight. Thank you very much for those good questions. I appreciated it. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. We move to the topic of dozens of children and adults going missing every year in Kansas, and many times their stories go untold. KAKE's Annette Lawless is asking for your help to help find those people. We have joined with us the Emmy and Morrow Award-winning journalist at KAKE in Wichita, Kansas. Annette, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you all for having me. So, Annette, you're an award-winning anchor and journalist based in Kansas and hosts the morning show Good Morning Kansas. And back in 2018, you launched the investigative series Missing in Kansas. Can you tell us more about it? Absolutely. When I created the idea, I think my boss wasn't completely sold. He wasn't quite sure if there were enough missing people in our state to make a segment that we could have every single day. But I, I really believe that was a problem and it is a problem plaguing our community. And I got everything running. I called every major metro police department, the sheriff's offices, and I got everybody on board. And we've had a very successful series so far. We're getting close to about 1,000 cases that we've shared in the series. It's amazing. And that in 2020, uh, more than 540,000 people were reported missing, half of them, more than half being juveniles. Uh, what are some of the challenges in dealing with these uh, uh, cases, especially with regards to, to juveniles? I think with people and the stories that we share, sometimes they disregard kids when we share their stories. I mean, we're interested in them for sure. And when you have a really young child, like an Amber Alert, people are invested, they care. But when we're talking about teenagers, it's a whole different ballpark. People might brush them off as a runaway, someone who maybe is a bit of a misfit in the community, but there's so many layers, as I know everyone at home is thinking, as being a teenager, it's tough, right? And in today's world, I'm sure it's even tougher. The things that they face and the reasons that they may not be where they're supposed to be are so multifaceted, whether that's they're involved with the wrong people, they're struggling with their mental health. Our hope is that we can figure out what's making them run or why they're gone and bring them the resources that they need. Because we do have people in the community who do care, but it's really a tough sell sometimes to get people convinced that they do matter. So in that Gabby Petito's case has been getting a ton of media coverage over the past couple of months. Um, and many talk about that particular case in the context of what is called the missing white woman syndrome, which we actually talked about quite a bit on our last show. We would love to get your thoughts on that issue and how you think, based on your experience with your investigative series, may be some of the best ways to address it. 
Sure. I think that the relativeness of that topic of missing white woman syndrome, I, I believe it's true. I believe there there is to some degree as a community, I wouldn't say there's a particular person or, or place to blame, but we, we get invested in certain types of stories. We love cold case stories, for example, cold case, uh, cold, true crime podcasts are big. And the part that's interesting about them is how fascinating some of the stories may be. In Gabby Petito's case, I mean, how many layers of fascination do we have there? You have a girl who's popular because of her road tripping and her internet famedom, the context and peculiarness of this boyfriend and the talk of abuse and the police video. I mean, there's all these interesting layers that are very sellable. And while I think that her case is fascinating, there are so many others that are interesting. They may not have that that sexiness or that attractiveness like this particular case. And I hate to call it sexy, but it's just, it's very appealing. It's very interesting. And I, I think that all cases certainly do have that interest or that do have that those interesting layers, but it, it's it's tough to, to compete with something like that. I'm glad our family did address this though, and that people have opened their eyes a bit to this topic because as a community, I just feel like we're invested in certain types of stories sometimes. Sometimes police are, sometimes media are. I wouldn't say we're all that biased. Like we only care about certain types of people. It's just certain stories really appeal to us. And her story certainly really is appealing. Now, what role, if any, do you think the media has to play in shifting the focus, maybe from people like Gabby Petito to others, including many that you focus on in your series that are not, you know, white, young, female, blonde, uh, you know, victims, but are, are victims of color. Uh, what role do you think the media has? And I think bigger picture do you think that we'll see a trend of some members of those communities being represented more in the media, both in front of and behind the camera, to maybe influence the decision as to which of these stories are covered and to what extent? It's such an important place. Media has such an important role in everything that we do. And there, there's so many different places where we play that role, whether that's online on people's televisions. I mean, really, it's all about devices these days, getting to people's phones. And that's what I like about Missing in Kansas is because I share stuff on TV, but honestly, I care more about the social media stuff than anything because that gets people's hands onto pictures and stories of people that are of all walks of life. For me, I would say like, I have such an honor being able to talk to so many families. A mom just contacted me today. I shared her daughter's story. I didn't even know the mom. I found her daughter's story online, shared the daughter's picture. Mom's like, I think I know where she is. I'm relaying that information to police. We're getting the ground working. And this is a case there, you know, if our program, most people in the media here in my community probably wouldn't share her story, but I'm so grateful that we were able to, and hopefully we'll be able to get her tracked down. This girl's just got a lot of tough things that she's facing personally, and I'm, I'm glad to be able to shed light on that. And then also other cases like, you know, cold cases with missing adults, adult men, um, just other stories that you may not have heard of. We get a chance to highlight them. And I'm hoping that as journalists hear the story of Gabby Petito and the criticism that we're facing right now, maybe that will inspire them to, to look at these stories in another way. Maybe they'll start a series of their own. I've had some people contact me and I've given them the tools that I use to create the series that I have. And I wish them the best and, and going and making that happen in their own community. So fingers crossed, more people will get inspired. So one quick last question for you, Annette. I'm curious if you can share maybe an anecdote or two of cases that have been cracked through your, through your series. I think that the most interesting have come at me this past year. And the one case that really has resonated with me, and it's challenging because it's a teenage runaway case, um, is of a girl who she's from Wichita, 13 years old. Just this past year, someone had given me a tip online. They're like, I think this girl is in California. Some videos and pictures were surfacing online. And I looked at them and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I looked at it a little bit more and I'm like, well, maybe. And I started digging into that and we were able to find her. She was being sex trafficked in Los Angeles. Wow. And I was able to pinpoint the places she was staying, where police needed to go. So I contacted the sheriff's office for LA County, LAPD. I contacted, I mean, the Kansas Attorney General's office, all these different resources that I lean on every day. And we were able to go and find her. And so I think stories like that, they happen. We don't talk about them a ton at my work. I mean, it's a great success story, but to me, it's just sort of like a private success story. I want people to know we're doing good work, but 
uh, we can't share everything about those cases because of privacy and age associated with the people, but um, stuff like that, that happens quite often. And it's, it's really great to know that we can go and find things. And it's just a matter of the community. I mean, the community is rallied behind this. It's unreal. And it's so rewarding to know that we're going and helping people. If you feel you have any information that can help out Annette Lawless, feel free to email her at alawless at kake.com or follow her on Twitter at Annette Lawless. That's at Annette Lawless. Annette, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you all. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Back to Legal Faceoff here on WGN Radio, a returning guest and friend of the podcast. Brian Cuban's got a new book out, The Ambulance Chaser, a thriller about a lawyer that's accused of murdering a high school classmate 30 years ago and becomes a fugitive from justice to find one person that can prove his innocence and save the life of his son. We're joined with us by the Dallas-based attorney, author, and addiction recovery advocate, Brian Cuban. Also, be sure to check out his other books, Shattered Image, my Triumph Over Body Dysphormic Disorder and the Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. He's also the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. And let's uh, clear it up right away. I have never murdered anyone <laughs> or, or been accused of it yet. This is uh, not a memoir, a novel. Well, thanks, Brian. It's great to see you again. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, as Joe mentioned, your new book, The Ambulance Chaser, which is a little bit of a different type of book for you to write, is scheduled to launch at the end of the year. It's a legal thriller and apparently is, um, you know, three years in the making. Can you give us a little bit of a sneak preview of the book and what made you decide that now is the time to do a legal thriller? Sure. It's about a uh, troubled personal injury lawyer. Aren't all lawyers and legal thrillers troubled in some way, right? There's a drugs or whatever. It's a trope. But uh, his name is Jason Feldman, my mother's maiden name. And he uh, he's kind of a walk the line personal injury lawyer with his main source of clients is one chiropractor. But he also has a side hustle to care for his uh, father, who he wants to keep in a high end uh, memory care home struggling with dementia. He deals drugs part time as, as a rideshare driver, kind of uh, Uberish. And uh, it's it's funny. I've had people say that's a uh, that that doesn't happen, but it does actually happen. There's a subculture of lawyers who drive for Uber and Lyft and whatever. So lawyers do do that. And so this guy ends up uh, getting accused of the murder of a one time high school classmate when her remains are discovered at a construction site. He's arrested, charged with her murder, and he skips and is on the run across the United States to the marijuana fields of the uh, Golden Triangle of Cal Northern California to find the one person who can prove his innocence and save the life of his son who's been kidnapped. So, Brian, you've admitted now on our show and to the world that you haven't uh, murdered anyone yet, but uh, this book does touch on some issues that are very they're very, you know, hit very close to home for you, including the issues of addiction and recovery that you've spoken to us about before on our show. It's also the subject of a great article just today in the ABA Journal. Talk to us about your struggles with this issue as an attorney and also your work to help others in our profession deal with this issue that continues to be very pervasive, especially in light of what's been going on with COVID lately. Sure. I have struggled mightily. Uh... I struggled with I've struggled with cocaine addiction, alcohol addiction. Uh, I had been an alcoholic since college and uh, through law school, the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. I added cocaine on my resume in the summer of 1987, did my first line in that bathroom in Dallas. And it was Katie bar the door. And my life as a lawyer really became more as kind of an ambulance chaser doing anything I could, taking any case I could, even if I wasn't qualified to take it, to uh, fund my partying and my uh, cocaine, cocaine and alcohol habit. 
And it didn't end there. In 2005, my first of two trips to a psychiatric hospital after a near suicide attempt. Uh, I was arrested in the summer of 1990 for DWI. I went to jail. Three failed marriages. One more, I get a free set of steak knives. It even got so bad in 2006 when the Mavs went to the championship for the very first time. I was getting wonderful seats from my older brother, Mark, and trading them to my cocaine dealer for scalpers' prices in cocaine. And so I really had no limits. And in addiction, what's the definition of addiction? Obsessive, compulsive, drug-seeking behavior in the face of probable consequences, right? So I knew all of this stuff was wrong. I've done cocaine in the state courthouse, the federal courthouse. I've showed up at hearings under the influence of Xanax uh, and cocaine and hungover. And, and of course, I knew all these things were wrong, unethical, but uh, that's addiction. That, and, and, it's, and I'm not alone in the lawyers who have showed up at hearings drunk under the influence and of all the things. Just look on YouTube. You can see videos of some of them. And, and I failed the bar exam. Uh, two and a half times in Texas, all because studying was more important. I mean, drugs were more important than studying. The first time I took the Texas bar exam, my study aids the weekend before the exam were uh, three and a half ounces of cocaine, a fifth of Jack Daniels and a liter of tab and some bar review books I'd borrowed that weekend. So it was all about the addiction and not about the practice of law. Your listeners, I know, are wondering, how does this guy still have his license? Wow. Or has it been suspended? No, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, but just listen to the litany. I just gave you the anthology, and you can see how it happens to so many lawyers. So, Brian, I mean, you're an inspiration to us. You and I met a number of years ago through, of all things, Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, And you've actually spoken at my firm and countless other firms and organizations and have been very transparent about your struggle with addiction and recovery. Um, One of the things that I think has really come to light through COVID, and we actually touched on this a little bit, is what people's personal struggles are with addiction. And I think it has shed a new light just because COVID has accelerated and exacerbated many of the different conditions and circumstances in which people um, end up becoming addicted and, and, and accelerate their addictions. What have you seen in the 20 plus months since we all ended up um, hibernating, so to speak, with COVID when it comes to addiction? Wonderful question. And I've seen things happening on a few different levels, and none of them are good. Uh, I've seen lawyers who who were already struggling and no longer have those uh, outlets like 12-step and things uh, where they can go and have human connection, true human touch for their support. So their drinking or their drug or substance use escalates. And what I have seen substantially in the solo profession, in the small law profession that makes up the majority of lawyers, is the isolation that has really hurt lawyers. And we have seen drinking increase. We have seen problem drinking increase. We can put that aside and look at just the universe in general, the United States in general, in 2020, there were 93 fatal, uh, 93,000 fatal overdoses, and a record. And so that's not just the legal profession; that's the U.S. in general, and it's opioids, and most of them are related to fentanyl-contaminated opioids. But you see a lot of people turning to substances to compensate for isolation, and to compensate for that missing human connection. Zoom is great. We can connect to a degree on Zoom, but it's not the same. Human connection, human touch. We, are, we, we evolve to need that type of interaction. And when it goes, when we're struggling, what do we, we can tend to replace it with things that are not healthy. Brian, the ambulance chaser sounds great. I can't wait to read it. Uh, you know, we often have authors on and, and filmmakers uh, in, uh, in legal series and movies. And we always end up with the same conclusion that, you know, you have to take dramatic license in books and film and TV because the normal everyday lives of lawyers are pretty boring. You're the exception. You're the one guest we've had where your actual real life is more interesting than the protagonist in The Ambulance Chaser. But it sounds like a great read. Uh, my question is, who do you have in mind to play 
the lead role in a film. It sounds like it'll make a great film. Who would be your dream uh, dream actor to play? The you know movie? what? If Nick Cage, if Nick Cage was twenty years younger, he'd be my he he he'd play Jason Feldman. <laughs> well, the good news is Nick Cage puts out only about eighteen or nineteen movies uh, a year. That's so right. <laughs> he, he could probably fit into your probably fit into the schedule. Yes, yes, yes. But I, I had, you know, in my younger days, I often got told there's a resemblance. So, and uh, I'll go with, uh, I'll go with a young Nick Cage to play Jason Feldman. There you go. I like it. <laughs> Be sure to check out Brian's new book, The Ambulance Chaser, also Shattered Image and The Addicted Lawyer and a new ABA article just recently released about him. Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It's time to move on to the legal grab bag here in the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. And our two guests today, thrilled to bring them in. It's Commissioner Maria Bocanegra of the Illinois Commerce Commission. She's also a well-respected attorney with public service in both Democratic and Republican administrations. Commissioner, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Along with Anita Ventrelli, a senior partner at the largest family firm in the United States, Schiller, DeCanto, and Fleck. Anita, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, Rich, we're going to actually, actually, Tina gets uh, the leadoff story this time. <laughs> so, Tina, a U.S. Congressional Committee probing the assault on the Capitol in January voted unanimously on Tuesday in favor of contempt of Congress charges against Steve Bannon, a longtime aide to former President Donald Trump. Tina is famous for her knowledge of federal subpoena power in the way <laughs> congressional <laughs> hearings. So how can, how can I be the expert in action here? So as Joe said, the uh, committee yesterday had a unanimous vote um, to hold Steve Bannon in contempt, um, and this is in keeping with what we've been seeing in the press the last few days. Former President Trump um, has been making some efforts and, and directing others to not answer any questions um, with regard to the January 6th insurrection probe, and he actually filed suit a few days ago to prevent Congress from obtaining some of these former White House documents. Uh, tomorrow is actually when um, the vote is going to go to the full House on Steve Bannon. And assuming that it is approved by the House, it's then going to go to the Department of Justice, which will then make the decision about whether or not to press criminal charges against Bannon. I mean, there's a lot of speculation here. There's a lot of intrigue, as always. Um, people suspect, um, you know, very strongly that Trump was personally involved in the January 6th insurrection, and that that is the reason why Bannon has been um, blocking efforts to get more information. So, Rich, it's more of the same of what we've been talking about for many months now. I mean, there's a lot of interesting legal issues, of course, intertwined. I mean, you know, Bannon said the day before the insurrection on his podcast that all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. So I want to hear from him, obviously, to what degree this inside or this insider, former insider, uh, from Trump knew about this action and, and, and you know, what degree that went, to what degree that went to the uh, administration. Also, um, you know, Trump has asserted executive privilege. You know, he, again, it's more sort of Trump uh, nonsensical legal arguments because the sitting executive holds that privilege, not the former executive. The other issue with this case legally is, you know, if they vote 
in favor of this action, in other words, holding him in contempt of Congress, then what? You know, there's no, like, jail inside of, of Congress to put him in. This has happened a couple times, uh, but not recently. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they effectuate this contempt of Congress action. Um, but I think, you know, obviously, for sure, let's hear from him. Uh, Commissioner, what are your thoughts on it? You know, I haven't been following this too much, admittedly, but, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is what what's even the standard here, um, you know, for trying to go after um, Donald Trump? I mean, is it a known or should have known standard? I mean, assuming that the executive privilege doesn't apply, I, I'm curious to know, you know, to what degree he had to know um, what would constitute participation. But yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. To, I, I don't know that Trump will be prosecuted from this, right? That's a bit of a, a stretch. But also, I think the ultimate goal by Bannon here, Anita, is to base and Trump by filing this lawsuit is to wait it out until the midterms when possibly the Republicans regain control and therefore this won't be an issue anymore. Mm. What are your thoughts, Anita? Well, I, I'm a big fan of transparency. I don't think people should get to hide behind privileges that aren't clear cut where the speech they're trying to protect is involved in something like this. So it's going to be a real interesting thing to watch unfold. I think what happened in the Capitol that day shook everybody to their core and nobody wants to see it happen again. And I think that's part of why they're pursuing it so heavily. Moving on, Tina, the big law firm Mayor Brown came under fire for its most recent representation of the University of Hong Kong. The university is trying to get a work of art, which is the Pillar of Shame sculpture. It was designed to commemorate the victims from a 1989 massacre in Beijing, but it's now been removed from its, or rather they're trying to get it removed from its campus. Yeah, so this goes into the bucket of you can't please everybody all the time. And when you're dealing with firms like Mayor Brown, my old firm and other firms in the firm I'm currently at, when you're a large international firm, it's always a challenge to think through what the possible ramifications are of representation. So in this instance, as Joe mentioned, uh, Mayor Brown was representing the University of Hong Kong and the removal of this particular statue, particularly in this political and um, historical context, um, was really seen as something as as being very much anti-rights, um, human rights, suppression of human rights, and, and um, was viewed in a very negative light. And given the nature of Mayor Brown, the fact that they do a lot of pro bono work, some of which is in this very area, um, they were very sensitive, which is understandable, to the backlash that they received with regard to this representation. And so as a result, they made the decision that they were not going to continue to represent the University of Hong Kong anymore. And as these things go, once they made that announcement, they suffered a backlash from the backlash. Um, there were some um, very senior officials and former officials in Hong Kong who, who went public and said that this act made Mayor Brown unreliable in the, in the Asian region. Um, and that as a result, that they would not be seen as a go-to firm in that region. So, you know, I, I found the story interesting. I can understand how difficult this is for Mayor Brown, um, given the nature of what their representation is and given how large they are in the geographies in which they're servicing clients. It is really tough to navigate these waters sometimes. I mean, you got to credit them, I guess, on the one hand for taking a stand and losing a client because they felt that, you know, their their human rights position, the firm's human rights position was more important. On the other hand, it's a little bit of a case of wokeism gone crazy, right? I mean, you've got this piece of art. It's a piece of art. I understand that it, um, you know, is a controversial piece, but, you know, we represent clients, all of us do, or a lot of us do, that, you know, sometimes do things that we don't agree with. You have a duty as an attorney to represent your client. Now, that could end if you decide that representing them isn't consistent with your values, I guess. But if you look down the roster of Mayor Brown's uh, clients, which is, you know, vast and incredible and international, you don't think there are other clients who are doing questionable things? Where do you draw that line? Um, again, understanding that our baseline duty as an attorney is to zealously represent your client. Anita, what are your thoughts on that? You said the line. You made me immediately think of the um, the definition of pornography. I can't tell you what it is, but I know it when I see it. Right. 
I actually think it took a lot of courage. You know, a lot of big law firms would have doubled down on this. And as soon as the initial backlash started, they would have become more entrenched in their position. So that, I guess, tells me that they were probably following the collective conscience of their firm and making the decision. Commissioner, what are your thoughts? I mean, isn't there an argument to be made? I mean, this let's understand what we're talking about. This university took down this piece of art that commemorates this massacre. We all, you know, many of us remember Tiananmen Square. That's an admirable piece of art. On the other hand, maybe the university felt like it's not in their, you know, it's not something a university, a public university, should be commemorating either for or against. I mean, there's an argument to be made that there's some good reason the university did this. And who is the law firm to step in and decide what's right or wrong morally for their client? Yeah, I mean, I think that I kind of agree with you, Rich. I feel like this is an example of um, wokeism, but I, I, I'm not surprised to, to hear of a reaction like that, whatever the size of the law firm. It's like cancel culture, you know, on steroids. Um, anything you do and say will be used against you, it seems like. But, you know, I think the, the bigger question is, like you said, where do you draw the line? I mean, how come no one's blaming the University of Hong Kong? Or, you know, do you blame the judge and the jury, you know, if, if that were to ever be decided? And I don't think that there's really enough information uh, to know why exactly that statute was coming down. I mean, perhaps they wanted a bigger one, or maybe it was something really benign. I mean, you have no idea. And I think attaching, um, you know, some sort of human rights component to this, I don't know if it captures everything, but um, I also wonder too, if, you know, the, the attorneys are just generally in violation of their obligations to represent their client, like you said, or if they're just kind of getting dumped there uh, in the 11th hour. Moving on to our next thing to see if another law firm jumps in and takes up the, the cause. Are you offering? No, 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 no. <laughs> that's outside my wheelhouse. But to your point, I mean, Tina, just to return to your point, this is not a decision that's made quickly or in a vacuum with a big firm. I mean, you know, uh, speak to us quickly about what goes into that decision. Listen, at the end of the day, they are making a, an economic decision as much as they are a decision for the integrity of this of this protest, but they have to be understanding that it would. It's not surprising that the the reaction would be this. So, presumably, Mayor Brown understood that this would be the backlash, and maybe they're kicked out of Asia as this executive says they should be, and that went into their decision making. You know, that's a great question, Rich, and I can tell you that my experience in my current firm is the same as it was in my old firm, which is that there's a new business intake process. And I think a lot of law firms have this process and it may look a little different from firm to firm, but the gist is there's a lot of questions that an attorney that wants to bring in business has to answer. And it's not just, you know, where's your client located and all of that stuff. There are questions about the nature of the representation, who's potentially adverse, um, and there are certain flags that go off and certain um, triggers that go off, depending on what the nature of the engagement is. And that committee has to make a decision, usually in concert with firm leadership, about whether or not they want to take on the engagement. And there are usually a lot of questions asked, particularly depending on certain types of cases and who the potential clients are and who the potential adversaries are. I mean, that being said, you know, and again, I want to move on, but the University of Hong Kong presumably is a huge client, right? A university is a microcosm of every kind of litigation you can imagine. So that's a huge client for the firm. That would presume that you would have to go through some kind of checklist and say, oh, by the way, client, do you have some art that might be interpreted as violating, as, you know, insulting to human rights? That's, of, of course, that's something you want to do, but that's, that's kind of rough, right? Well, I mean, that's why we do a separate engagement for each matter, especially if one matter is significantly different than what else has been done for that client. So presumably there would have been some conversation about what this particular engagement would have been and what was involved. So. All right, let's move on to the next topic. And uh, Rich, it seems like McDonald's customers have finally figured out that coffee is indeed hot, but now McDonald's isn't securing their lids tightly enough. Newsflash, everyone. Coffee is hot. Hot coffee is hot. Right. We all remember the famous case, the hot coffee case that got so much attention, um, you know, went viral really before there was such a thing as going viral. Uh, and now many years later, that was in 1992. Fast forward to now, we've got two more lawsuits uh, alleging that McDonald's served coffee at a temperature that was dangerous to the consumers. And these two customers got burned as a result of it. They're alleging that the lip was not or the lid was not secure. 
spilled. One of them says that the, the coffee spilled in their lap. Uh, the lawsuit also alleges negligence in not training McDonald's employees to properly deliver coffee to customers as if you should, you know, put on some kind of like, you know, biohazard suit in handing the coffee to the customer, failing to warn customers that you might have a burn if hot coffee was spilled on you. So the 1992 case resulted in, you know, lots of discussion with tort reform uh, really was sort of that flashpoint in a tort reform movement around the country because it was really a frivolous lawsuit from my perspective as someone who defends a lot of restaurants against what I consider very frivolous lawsuits. But, you know, they're popping up again. So I don't think they're going to survive, uh, but people keep people keep filing them. Tina, are you, uh, you worried that hot coffee is going to spill on you if you pick it up from your drive-thru? No, I'm not because I exercise, you know, what I consider to be a reasonable amount of caution when I get food or when I get drinks given to me. I don't frequent um, drive throughs all that much, but whether I'm in the drive through or whether I'm in the restaurant, you know, lids pop off sometimes. I think we've all seen it. We've all experienced it. And I know coffee is hot, as does everybody else in the world. So I think that probably lets you know what I think of these cases, Rich. Anita, what's the, uh, or Maria, let's start with you, Commissioner. What's the alternative? Do you want to serve coffee cold and then give the consumer some kind of, you know, heating up device so in their car they can heat up the coffee? What's the alternative if you're the plaintiff to these kind of lawsuits? Well, let me start by saying I don't drink McDonald's coffee, so I'm not too familiar with uh, what it all it, what the problem is there. But, you know, I, I, I read some stuff about the, these lawsuits. And the first thing that came to my mind is, you know, do these coffee cups need to come in those trays where the thing that they're grabbing is the tray? I mean, I'm not I think I would need a little bit more facts, but it seems as though somewhere in that handoff, the lid pops off. Uh, so maybe the fix instead of warming up your coffee is putting it in some sort of holder. Ooh. All right, Anita, fix the coffee, fix the coffee or use common sense. That coffee is hot. Where does it end? People not taking responsibility for their role in things. Okay, if I go to Baskin Robbins drive through and I get an ice cream cone and it melts on my hand and I lose my focus and I crash my car. Is it the ice cream's fault? Is it Baskin Robbins fault? I, I can't really take things like this that seriously I, I look at it and i think if the if the one lady has passed away how do they even make a case or keep a case alive but um then my brain went the same direction as the commissioners maybe when mcdonald's or other places serve any liquid they should set it on a ledge and let the customer pick it up because then it's all about the customer or make the customer put on lid or don't sell drinks through the drive through make them go inside and put their own lids on if all of America gets inconvenienced by the way companies decide to address and eliminate lawsuits like this, maybe we'll have fewer of them. You know, the court systems don't need this kind of stuff. Well, whoever put together the rundown and put the little caption for this story, I can't top it. You got sued, babe. Cher filed suit against her late ex-husband's widow, Mary Bono alleging that she had been withholding royalties from Sonny and Cher's 1960s hits, I Got You, Babe, and the beat goes on. Tina, I think this was Yvonne that put it together. So hats off to Yvonne. Yes. Well, and hats off to TMZ that originally ran the story and uh, came up with the name, but I think it's great. So uh, Way to stop all over Yvonne's credit there, Tina. You can only <laughs> just have that one. But no. So anyway, so um, the story, you know, a lot of us knew, grew up with, watched the Sonny and Cher show, listened to their hits, um, watched their relationship, you know, go to the peak of the charts. And then they end up getting divorced. They break up the show. They break up the band, all of that. And so what happened here is that um, when Sonny Bono died in the late 90s, actually Mary, who was his wife at the time, his fourth wife and his widow, um, and Cher actually got along really well. Um, I remember there being a lot of press around his death. They went to put the press a lot together. And the latest is that Cher Suter, for damages relating to the withholding of the royalties of these songs, apparently when 
Sonny and Cher got divorced in the 70s. Um, this was a big part of what their divorce settlement was, was dealing with the royalties associated with the songs that they sang together and that they co-wrote. Um, and so this is just another fight. We see a lot of these where um, a widow or the rights holder goes after the widow of um, or of the estate or the owner of the estate of different songs of the deceased. And so my guess is that this is going to settle out. I mean, it seems to be a pretty cut and dry sort of thing. Um, but in any event, it was nice to see Cher back in the news. You don't hear much about her anymore. I don't think she's doing a whole lot of touring lately. At least I haven't seen it. But um a great act that and uh, Tony Orlando and Dawn remind me of what I used to be watching and uh, the Osmonds. That's what I was watching when I was a kid back in the seventies. So, wow, Nita Martini uh, TV history. Anita, what are your thoughts on this divorce settlement from nineteen seventy eight? But should it have dealt with this so that we're not dealing with it all these years later? Well, from the way I read it, it did deal with it. It gave Cher the right to receive it. I cannot imagine, I can't envision a set of circumstances where the um, the widow now can go back and change the divorce settlement. If Sonny didn't have a basis to change the settlement within the required timeframes, she can't do it now. She's got an absolute right to what she's looking to get. So I wouldn't, if I were representing her, I think I'd feel pretty comfortable that she can go ahead and enforce the rights. We move from the Older generation of Sonny and Cher to Facebook, always good combination. Uh, a real estate agent could miss out on tens of thousands of dollars because of a missing apostrophe in Facebook, Rich. So many things I learned about Australian defamation law in this story. Apparently, uh, who knew that Australia, or actually, yeah, Australia is a hotbed of uh, defamation cases, right? You guys pick yeah. up on that? Uh, very common to sue people for defamation in the land down under. But in this case, the allegation is that because there is missing an apostrophe, instead of saying employee apostrophe S, meaning this guy, this plaintiff was not given his uh, retirement funds, he left out the apostrophe. And uh, as a result, the allegation is that he's now owed retirement, that the defendant owes retirement funds to all employees. So the story is not that as important as it is an example of what I've said forever. Get your punctuation right. This drives me crazy. There's all sorts of lawsuits that we've covered on this show about missing apostrophes and the Oxford comma. There was a famous case involving the Oxford comma. Get your frigging grammar right, people. New attorneys. There's a difference between possessive and plural. I see the possessive and plural apostrophe mistake literally about 80% of the time. Get that straight. Otherwise, you're going to cost your clients lots of money. Tina. There's a great quote in this, in this article, Rich. It was a woman who wrote a book, Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. She said, no matter that you have a PhD and have read all of Henry James twice, if you still persist in writing good food at its, with it apostrophe S, best, you deserve to be struck by lightning, hacked up on the spot, and buried in an unmarked grave. <laughs> Agreed. I think law schools are not producing the most grammar-centric practitioners, is my old man take on it. Commissioner, you're someone who is an excellent legal writer who values the difference between a plural and possessive apostrophe, right? I am a stickler for, for that. I'm sure all lawyers are to some degree. But I think, you know, aside from it being very odd, the the litigious nature in Australia with defamation, I think, you know, you have to consider the context. I mean, it's social media. Everybody is missing apostrophes. Everybody, you know, has these little phrases that I don't even know what it means. You know, uh, I'm still trying to Google things sometimes to figure out what the IMO means or HMU means. I have no idea. So I, I kind of feel like that should be taken into consideration. It's a typo, but um, regardless, I mean, either, either way, with or without the apostrophe, it does sound a little defamatory either way you, you slice it, but. I say throw the book at him, Anita. There's no <laughs> such thing as, as minor typo error. I mean, have you ever had any pleadings or any documents that have turned on a relatively minor typo like this? 
I had $30,000 worth of litigation over a comma in a marital settlement agreement Uh, where one paragraph, two paragraphs, they were supposed to be mirror images. This gave rise to Anita's corollary of writing number one. Say it in one place and refer back. Don't ever restate. Comma in one paragraph, no comma in the other paragraph. $30,000 worth of litigation over the thing. I mean, if you're going to be critical be careful for Lord's sake, because you know, somebody's going to try to take you to task on it. Why give them something as easy as an apostrophe or a comma? Joe, let that be a lesson to you. Okay. And uh, I'll share a message to the commissioner too. It's in my opinion and hit me up. Those are the <laughs> acronyms stand for. There you go. I'm getting old. <laughs> yeah. No idea. Any, any other ones you have, uh, concern about just just let me know i'll, I'll be happy to try i'll let you know there's there's quite a few out there <laughs> there <laughs> are. kids are making up new ones every single day i mean now when people our age send a smiley face we're being patronizing please <laughs> <laughs> there there has been a conversation of me and my cousins talking about our aunts and uncles saying that uh you know their generation doesn't understand text etiquette like saying something oh, yeah. okay. I, I was accused by by some kid of like being rude because like is it including a period is a no-no oh man yeah, yeah you, you were serious period that sounds it comes off as very uh like short and direct period. yes passive aggressive yeah you you avoid k and especially k period um well <laughs> another another good segue with facebook into divorce because some people are apparently contemplating divorcing their spouses just so they can get the full experience from Adele's newest single, Rich. Yeah, I mean, Anita, this is obviously right in your wheelhouse. We'll get everyone else to weigh in. But this new song is a sensation, Easy On Me, released a couple of days ago. And of course, it's now breaking the Internet. But there's you know, one of my favorite quotes from the World Wide Web was someone said, I can't believe Adele is making me get a divorce. I'm not even married yet. Someone else said, how could I get married, have a child and then get a divorce? In time for the release of Adele's album, so I can better connect with the music. So, are you singing uptick in uh, in business, Anita? This is uh, this is what you do. Are you? Uh, how you much know, influence? How much influence does pop culture have and music have on people running to their divorce lawyers? Really, truthfully, I, I hate to burst everyone's bubble, but not at all. I think it's a lot of talk. People want to identify with a singer or an artist, and Look at what everybody does in social media. It's all a thousand percent over the top. But what I would tell every one of those people is unless you, every divorce is like a snowflake, unless you have Adele's finances and Adele's soon to be ex, et cetera, yours won't turn out the same as, <laughs> as hers. So you don't have Adele money. Do not try this at home, people. It's like the stunt car stuff, you know? Professional driver, do not try it. Tina, do you, do you, do you, are you a fan more of the Adele sort of breakup stuff, which is about 85% of it, or the more upbeat Adele? Because Adele does seem to have struck a nerve on the, you know, broken up and sad kind of genre. Yeah, you know, I tend to like those songs better, just melodically and musically. Um, but, you know, I, I saw this story and the first thought I had is what is wrong with people? I mean, like it's saying that you can't empathize with somebody or really appreciate the art without putting yourself or trying to, as Anita mentioned, it's like, it doesn't matter if you go through the motions of the life events that Adele had at the end of the day, you're not really going to be situated the same way. And why would you want to be? I mean, I, I just like, what is wrong with people? They have too much time on their hands. I think they should meet up with the Britney Spears fans and like figure out what they're going to do next. Um, but oh. I mean, it's just, I think it's crazy. And speaking of like, you know, old time, I mean, commissioner back in the day, you didn't know anything about our favorite musicians, personal lives. So, you know, when someone wrote a breakup song, you didn't know that in real time, that person was undergoing a divorce and has a kid and it's going to be a custody battle. So all, imagine all these love songs and breakup songs over the years. If we were all as invested as people are now with Adele, because in real time, you know, everything there is to know about, you know, personal lives. Well, yeah, it's like I mean, these, these people are using their personal lives to market their professional art. Yeah, I mean, Simon Garfunkel. Right. I mean, every one of those songs, we would be, you know, obsessed with what's going on. I mean, no one knew that stuff back in the day. Well, I mean, I think to be fair, this is another example of the missing up asterisk. It's 
sounds like it's just a a joke, but <laughs> I certainly hope no one would uh, really want to be a div- uh, get a divorce. But I, I would say file that under your music playlist. Like when I get divorced, uh, this is the the song to listen to. Joe, are you into the new song? Or you have you give it a, a listen? You know, I'm I'm not really that big of an Adele fan. I, obviously, I, I think she's incredibly talented. I, I think she does marvelous work, but I just. I, I'm never going to be found rocking out to rolling in the deep in my car or hello for that matter. I just say, I, I can't get into it that much. And uh, no, I would never second guess my marriage just because I, I wanted to resonate with Adele slightly more. Uh, no, can't, can't say I'm part of that group. Um, what I can say is I'm, I'm very excited that we finally get to go to the next segment of the spooky Halloween lawsuits that has been so much anticipated during this legal grab bag. So Rich, we've got a little Bo Pete Bunsen burner. We've got a haunted house injury. We've got decorations that wished a neighbor's death and a corn maze that leads to a broken leg. I mean, every year, Joe, uh, this is your first year on the Halloween episode, but every year on legal face off, we commemorate the holiday, my favorite holiday, of course, with talking about some ridiculous Halloween-themed lawsuits, and you mentioned a couple of them. I mean, they all have a common theme, my friends. It's uh, personal responsibility. We talked about that earlier, and they're all really frivolous, and it's not my opinion. They're all frivolous because they were all dismissed, but yeah, the one is, you know, people dressing up. There's a couple who dressed up in a sheep costume, wearing cotton balls, and uh, the male member of the sheep costume Lit a cigarette, and what a shocker. The costume went up in flames. Who would think that lighting a cigarette next to cotton balls would result in some harm? He uh, sued Johnson & Johnson for failing to warn. Again, an individual suing a company for failing to warn about something that you should never have to warn someone about. That cotton is flammable. Don't light a match around cotton. There's other ones that's very common to our uh, Halloween episodes, which is you're in a haunted house, and you get scared. And you hurt yourself. Newsflash. You might get scared in a haunted house. Deal with it. You know that going in. And actually, most of these haunted houses now have a waiver either that you realize you're signing or that you don't realize. But either way, they mostly have a waiver where you wave away any lawsuits that you may have against the haunted house for good reason. You assume the risk of someone jumping out, scaring you, and you hitting the wall, a cinder block wall like one of the plaintiffs. So... Lots of fun to look at and talk about, Tina, but just dumb, frivolous lawsuits. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so hard to choose which one's my favorite because the stupidity of it all, it just, you know, kind of makes me laugh. It's just like you can't believe some of this stuff, um, but you can't make it up. And so I think my favorite one is the cotton ball story. I, I mean, it's just, you know, we all know what we use cotton balls for, what we're supposed to use cotton balls for, but the whole notion of using it in a, in a Halloween costume and then wondering why you go up in flames if you light a you know a cigarette or light a match or anything that's flammable around it is is just remarkable to me. I mean, this is right up there with the people who don't know coffee's hot and don't know what to do when food is served to them. I mean, it's the same principle. Anita, I enjoyed the uh, First Amendment case where the neighbor had tombstones insulting his fellow neighbors. And the cops arrested him, and the, the, the court found that there was no basis to arrest him because that is protective free speech, which it is. You know, you have the right to insult your neighbors. It might not be the most neighborly thing to do, but I thought that case was decided quite appropriately according to constitutional uh, standards. Uh, very short-sighted to have done, but all of these lawsuits, all kidding aside, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm seeing a lot of young lawyers falling into this trap of, wanting to list all the negatives. We're doing X, but let's put something in that says we're not doing A through J. And I look at them and I say, I don't know about you, but my law degree came with neither a crystal ball nor a magic wand. So where you're getting to foresee, if you try to foresee all the possible outcomes and list them and God forbid you miss one, where are you going to be then? It's just critical thinking is, is, is not what I'm really seeing in the younger generations that are coming out and taking on and filing, you know, some of these kinds of, of things. Anita, how often in your cases do you see Halloween issues? Does anyone ever fight over, uh, you know, who gets the 12 foot skeleton that's so hot right now? Uh, or who gets the, the only thing people fight about at Halloween is who gets to take the kids trick or treating. Uh, yes. 
And the good parents find ways to either walk down the sidewalk and watch them go or, you know, each take a certain block of hours. All right, Commissioner, what are you going as uh, for this Halloween? I know you still trick or treat. You know, I, I, I don't actually dress up. I, I don't dress up. But every year I try and make it out to New York City for their Halloween parade and just watch everybody, um, you know, get crazy. So um, no costume for me this year. All right, Joe, walk us out with uh, your favorite Halloween costume of all time. We'll go, we'll go around the horn and everyone tell us their favorite Halloween costume of all time. Favorite Halloween costume that I was? Yes, that you, that you dressed as. Uh, well, in college, people said I used to look like Cameron Fry from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So I, I had the shirt with the suspenders and the khakis. And another year I was ace. Finished. You didn't have the car, though, right? The car would have really completed. The yeah, year. right. Well, no. You know what I had the hardest time finding was a Red Wings jersey. <laughs> I, I couldn't find one. So I, I, I could have worn that. But but uh, yeah, I'll go with Cameron Fry. Well, now you could you could follow it up with uh, Succession. He's on Succession. So you could dress as him in Succession. Anita, favorite. Uh... Halloween costume of all time. Oh, that one's easy. My favorite one was one year my husband and I went as Archer and Lana. So I got to wear fun boots and carry guns. It was, uh, you know, fake ones that were BB guns, but it was a complete paradigm shift from what I do in my everyday life. Oh, nice. Uh, commissioner. Um, one year I went as groceries, um, really silly. So I kind of looked like a Chiquita banana and, you know, I had a jewel bag and we were at a bar and uh, of course, some young man throws his can of beer in my jewel bag, thinking it was garbage. But I'm like, that's part of my costume. But it was it's very silly, very fun. Tina. So um, I don't dress up a lot. One year I was um, Jim McMahon, actually. So I decided to go as uh, Jim McMahon. So I was dressed in all this uh, Bears gear. Spunky QB. Nice. Spunky QB. Nice. Well, I, uh, you know, I have worked in haunted houses before, so I've had some really good professional costumes. But when I was a kid in Canada, you know, start we got Star Wars like two years later than the rest of the world because it's Canada. And uh, my dad brought me back from a trip like a real Darth Vader mask, like not the plastic ones with the string. But he got his hands on this like professional one that actually connected in two places. So it was like a faceplate and then the hood part. And it was incredible. It was like a movie quality one. And I wore it out, but the problem was you couldn't see a damn thing out of the eye. So I was just like stumbling around the neighborhood, bumping into things as a uh, little Darth Vader. But it was uh, it was cool. I wish I still had it. It would be a collector's item. Well, Baby Yoda was so big, you couldn't have been Baby Darth Vader. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. That concludes Legal Grab Bag and this episode of Legal Face Off here on WGN Radio. Big thanks to our guests here, Anita and Commissioner. Oh, boy, look at that. Okay, this is what I've seen before. I've seen the Chucky doll. <laughs> well, luckily, uh, luckily, you weren't a Chucky doll for, for Halloween. I think that might have been. You're, that's just hanging out at your desk? Yeah, my pal. Yeah, it's how rich <laughs> Okay. For all of our other guests, including the Chucky doll, along with Tina Martini and Rich Lankoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you next time here on Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...